Good morning, church. Welcome here. It's been a joy to worship with you. And already this morning, I've met a kind of a rekindled connection with a few people I haven't seen in a long time. And COVID was hard to be separated from so many. But one of the joys is just every week now, there's more people being able to rekindle connections. And, and so take that opportunity after the service to, just to rebuild some of those uh, friendships. Can I comment on a couple things that were announced there? First of all, that father-son canoe trip. Is it wrong that I just like feel a little bit of glee inside that it was canceled? Like that is, if I can't have fun, then no one should have fun sort of thing. Is that bad? Yeah. <laughs> I'm a work in progress, church. I'm not perfect, okay? And the other thing, the baptism uh, service, and I think barbecue, we're actually having like a, Bethel is providing something uh, more sophisticated than a barbecue. It's going to be great. And so we're looking forward to that church picnic. But I do want to say, if you have not been baptized and you are following Jesus Christ, you need to be baptized. And uh, over the last few weeks, there's been a few of you that have stepped forward, like you've heard the Word of God, He's put that on your heart, you've had the courage to come forward and say, Pastor, um, I think I need to be baptized, and we're helping them through that. And so if that's you, it's not too late, whether it's for the 26 or beyond, um, come forward and, uh, and step into that. We want to celebrate that, and God wants to bless that. So if, uh, if you need to be baptized, speak with myself or any of our staff here um, at some point soon. This is the devil. The devil is red. He has horns. He has a pitchfork. And um, I guess the devil has like a high collar. Have you noticed that? I can only presume it's because his favorite type of music is rock and roll. Um, this uh, is an angel. These are angels. They're, they're chubby. They're fat. They're cute. They're kids. They have wings. They're gentle. Those are angels. This is hell. Now, if you have to avert your gaze, if that's too much for you, I understand. Um, this is the tamest picture of hell I could find. The one that I thought would elicit the, the fewest phone calls to the office on Tuesday. Hell is this place of eternal torment for those who are wicked, uh, a place where Satan and his demons gleefully torment and punish and apparently eat the wicked for all eternity. This is heaven. This is this place in the clouds where you play the flute and the lyre and the lute. We don't do that now, but in heaven, we're going to play lutes. For all eternity, you can, you can just tell it looks like they're having lots of fun. Maybe the modern version of that picture is this next one here, right? Like, uh, is this heaven? Right? On a cloud, with wings, playing the harp for all eternity. Exciting. Is that true? Is it all that? You know, organized religion seems to be on the decline, at least in our part of the world right now, but not spirituality. Boy, there is a growing interest in spiritual, spirituality, um, in the paranormal, the supernatural, whatever you want to call it, it seems to be on the rise. And, and I would define spirituality as the experience of spiritual reality, the supernatural, that reality which is beyond, uh, super, super means beyond the natural, that is not physical, material, of nature, but it is spiritual. Our view of spiritual reality uh, in our culture, and I think even in the church, has largely been shaped not so much by the Bible, the Christian scriptures, as much as maybe entertainment and the arts. And so I remember as a teenager, there was a classmate. He knew I was a Christian. He didn't know why I would want to be a Christian. Why would you want to play the lute for all eternity? That's boring. He was excited about hell, right? Because hell is going to be a place of rock and roll and women and booze. That's what he wanted. His last name was Godfrey, which seemed kind of appropriate. Uh, he lived a bit of a Godfrey life. And I've been at the graveside, uh, uh, you know, enough times where I've heard, you know, maybe a mother console a little child at grandma's death and say something like, don't worry, Grammy is an angel now. Looking down on us, watching over us for that many times. Maybe you have as well. Maybe you've said it. 
And so our perception of the spiritual reality, if we even believe in the spiritual reality, I think has largely been shaped by pictures and movies and Philadelphia cream cheese commercials. And we got lots of questions and lots of curiosities about the spiritual reality, and that was evidenced in the, in the questions you submitted. So we are in a series, now at least for a couple more weeks, where we're taking your questions that you have submitted, and you submitted many questions in our Burning Questions series, and we're taking some of those and we're going to the Bible to look for answers, questions about the Christian faith, about God, about the Bible. Um, and so sometimes I'll see a theme. And I realized, okay, if a few people are asking this, that means there's even more people that are wondering this. And there were three questions that all had to do with Satan. Somebody asked, why did God create Satan if he knew that sin would happen? Submitted by someone who put, a guy who never got it answered. Here's another one. If God has control over everything, that means Satan has to ask God before he commits evil, does that mean that by being against God, Satan is actually helping God fulfill his work? Are they then working together? That was submitted by a kid from youth who doesn't want to Google it. Don't Google stuff like that anyway. Uh, Another question, if God is good, why does he allow his people to suffer? I hate that you ask hard questions. We know that man has free will and Satan causes suffering, but if God really cared for his people, why doesn't he come in and rescue them to save them from suffering, kind of like Superman coming to the rescue? You've probably asked that before, wondered. So I thought that was worthy of of some exploration and and the answer to that question, uh, you you may not be fully satisfied and that's way more than one sermon could ever provide, but uh, we, we, we maybe will have a start on addressing some of those questions about the spiritual reality, and really three questions I want to look at this morning. Who is Satan? You know, I've, I've been here six years. I think I've, we've read scriptures that reference Satan, maybe mentioned like a little bit here or there in a sermon, but never really talked about who is Satan. So that's the first question. And then how does the will and the work of Satan relate to the will and work of God? How do those two pieces fit together? And then lastly, what difference do the answer to those questions really make in the way I live my life? So that's our goal, to look at those questions here uh, together this morning. And you may find yourself a little bit uncomfortable even talking about, like, the spiritual reality, Satan, because maybe it's so foreign, even just to our worldview, our experience of life, and um, we're maybe not really sure what to do with that. Like, maybe like a guy like Thomas Jefferson, who's on the nickel, the American nickel, and um, he was the third president of, of the United States, I'm told. And, and he, uh, he was a man of science. He was a modern man. He had dispensed with this idea of the supernatural, right, that there was such thing. There was only the natural, and science was all there was, and it would answer all of our questions. And so he came to the Bible, and he, he thought, thought of himself as a Christian, but he wanted to cleanse his Christianity of the supernatural. So you can still go to the Smithsonian University or uh, uh, Institute in Washington, D.C., and see the Jefferson Bible okay, where he took the Gospels and he literally cut out with a razor, he cut out all the sections of the Bible that were supernatural, where miracles supposedly happened or where God's divine power was expressed in some way, just leaving the the good moral teaching of Jesus, which is really what he thought Christianity was all about. So he dispensed with the supernatural, and we might be tempted to do the same except that the Christian faith is, by by its very nature, it is a supernatural faith, right? God is spirit. The Bible says that. God is spirit. God is outside of nature. He is supernature. And and the very foundation of our faith, the death death and resurrection of Jesus is supernatural. Jesus was dead three days in the tomb. It's not that all of a sudden, like, you know, sometimes people, they're dead, but they're not really dead. You know, the, the heart kind of kicks in again. And, oh, we wrote the, the certificate too soon. He was dead for three days, and by God's divine power, God raised Jesus from the dead. It was supernatural. The Christian faith is a supernatural faith, and so it shouldn't maybe shock us um, or trouble us to, to believe that there is a spiritual reality, a spiritual realm that even involves spiritual beings. And after all, the Bible will talk a lot about this, angels and demons. 
and give us some insight into that reality without answering every question. And we got lots of questions about the spiritual reality. And I just want to tell you, the Bible isn't there to answer all of your questions. Sometimes we kind of expect the Bible just to tell us everything, every truth. And that's not why God gave it to us, right? Like we'll go to the Genesis 1 and 2. How old was the earth? Well, that's an interesting question, but that's not the question Genesis 1 and 2 is trying to address. Oh, that wasn't, that wasn't, that wasn't the purpose of, of giving that to answer the question, how old is the earth? So is that, is that word yom, does that mean like 24 hours or like a, a whole period of time? Well, that's not really what it's about. You know, the Bible is human-centric. It's God's Word given to us human beings for a purpose. And what is the purpose for which God gave us this? Well, we're told in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, where Paul says to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Why has God given us the scriptures? To make us wise, not so that we know everything about God, as every, every spiritual question, but that we know enough about who God is and, and His plan of redemption that we are made wise for salvation. That we can know God and live uh, and be reconciled to God. To have the life we create us to have, to be wise for salvation. That's why He gave us the Bible. And so it's not going to answer every single question we get. So for instance, Genesis chapter 3, all of a sudden God's made everything, but then there's this serpent that's talking in the garden. What? Did I miss something in chapter 1 and 2? What's this servant, serpent doing talking in the garden? Tempting the first man and the woman to defy God and sin. Now, the Bible doesn't actually say at that point that this is Satan, the serpent, although we do find out, it's, I think the verse maybe is up there, Revelation chapter 12, uh, verse 9, the great dragon was hurled down, who's that dragon? That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, so there the, the serpent is the devil is Satan, one, one being, who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. All right, so this serpent in Genesis chapter 3 is Satan, the devil. But how to get there? Like in, it, it, when, we, when we see God's creative work in Genesis 1, it doesn't say anything about that. How do you get there and who is Satan? What is going on? So really, I want to, I want to tell you four things about Satan. Just a little primer. Satan is an angel, number one, an angel. See, God created angelic beings, spiritual beings. And while it doesn't give us that account there in, in, in Genesis chapter 1, it's because it's human-centric. He's talking about the creating of the natural in us. But somewhere in there, God created angels. And we have this recorded in Psalm 148, verses 105, or at least it speaks to this. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise Him in His Heights above, praise Him, all His angels, praise Him, all His heavenly hosts, praise Him, sun and moon, praise Him, all you shining stars, praise Him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the skies, let them praise the name of the Lord, for at His command they were created. Well, who's the they? Well, all that He just listed there that praises Him, including the angels. At His command, the angels were created. So at some point there, prior to Genesis 3, when God created the natural, there was also a spiritual reality that He created, which involves angels, these beings. It talks about that in Colossians 1, where it says that Jesus created both the visible and the invisible reality. There is a supernatural, a spiritual reality. But why did God create angels? Well, He created angels to really to do two things, to worship Him and to help God do His work in the world that He had made, really to help us. And it says this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. It says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Part of why God made angels is to, is to minister to us, to help us who belong to God. 
So the word angels is really, really just the Greek word that means messengers, those who come with a message or a ministry from God to do His will and His work in our lives, to assist. Satan is an angel, but of course he's not one of the, like, that doesn't sound like that Satan there. Satan is a fallen angel. And then there's a variety of scriptures that we don't have time to look at, but in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12, it talks about, it talks about um, uh, Satan before he fell. It's, it's, it, God says that he was full of wisdom. He was perfect in glory. He was this beautiful, powerful angel that God had made to worship him and to do his work. And it says this in Isaiah chapter 14, verses... Um, Isaiah 14, verses 14 and 15. How you have fallen from heaven, you morning star, son of the dawn. Morning star, that's Lucifer. If you've heard the word Lucifer, it's like it's kind of a name for the devil, for Satan. That's just the Greek word that translates morning star. Lucifer means shining one, okay? How you have fallen from heaven, Lucifer, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Does that kind of remind you of Genesis 3, what he says to the man and the woman? Right? I will make my... In other words, here we see that although he was made by, as an angel to worship God, he rebelled against God. He rebelled and, and tried to seize what belonged to God. He wanted to be worshipped, not a worshiper. He wanted glory for himself. He wanted to be served, not to serve God. And so he rebels against God. He instigates this heavenly rebellion, which we get a little insight in there. Jesus says, of course, as one who was there, he says, I, in Luke chapter 10, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And so we have these little windows into this event which we hear about a little bit back in the, in the book of Revelation, chapter 12 again, where it says this in verse 4, it talks about this re re rebellion. The dragons, that is Satan's tail, swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And that's a reference to, to other angels. The third of the stars, there were, uh, there were other angelic beings that um, to, rebelled, with Satan, against God, and all of them together were cast out, were cast upon the earth, were cast out of heaven. And so Satan would, might be kind of the most powerful or maybe kind of the leader of that heavenly rebellion. And, and then those that other angels that fell and followed him are what the Bible calls demons, who themselves are angels, fallen angels. So Satan is an angel, he's a fallen angel, he's, the third thing is he's a doomed fallen angel and that his fate is sealed and he knows his fate is sealed and demons know their fate is sealed. And so Jesus comes to this man, we have the story in Matthew chapter 8 where he is possessed by a host of demons and Jesus wants to liberate the man and he, and he talks directly to the demons and they say to him, Lord, are you here to torment us before our appointed time? Before our appointed time. So they knew there was this time that God had appointed for them. A time of final judgment. Because Jesus would say a number of times elsewhere that God prepared hell for, for the devil and his angels. Did you know that? Because maybe your, your view has been shaped more by kind of like, like entertainment and media than the Bible. And sometimes we think like hell, well that's where, that's where Satan lives. And that he rules over it. And that's where he likes to do his thing. And so what hell is, it's a place where, where, where bad people are sent and then Satan just gleefully torments them for all of eternity. Satan is not the Lord of hell. Whatever hell looks like, God is the Lord of hell. And he designed hell as a place for judgment, for punishment on the devil and his angels. And at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20, it talks then, foretelling that time where, where God casts the devil and his angels into hell where they will... Um, be punished finally. So that time has set. That is coming. There is no redemption for them as, as, those who, as angels who have fallen. So Satan is a doomed fallen angel whose fate is sealed. Okay, so just to summarize here. Satan is a personal being. In other words, he's a real person kind of with a mind, with a will, not, not like a force. Sometimes you, you might think or hear of it more like, well, he's just a personification of evil, right? Just like we say, Father Time, like Father Time's coming for you. You can't escape Father Time, 
right? Like we know there's no father time. He's just a personification of time. That's not what the Bible teaches about Satan because God made angelic beings just like he made human beings. And so Satan is a person with a will, with a mind. He is, he is real and he was created. He's not like God. Sometimes people think of like God and Satan as if there's these equal opposing forces. Who's going to win, good or evil, the yin or the yang? And that's a very common kind of idea in other religion, right? Equal opposing forces, good, bad, yin, yang. No, he's a created being, whereas God is infinite in power, in knowledge, in wisdom. Satan is not unlimited. He is finite, for he is created. Okay? He is an angel, a fallen angel, a doomed fallen angel. And the fourth thing is he is powerful. In spite of all of that, he is powerful. And so, if you do a summary in the Bible of the, the work of Satan, you get a sense of like really how powerful this being is, and active this being is, in the world then and in the world today. So, in, in, in Luke chapter 13, it talks about this woman who Jesus says, who, who was crippled, and Jesus says, this woman has been bound by Satan for 18 years. And so, the Bible teaches that, that Satan actually has the power to bring about sickness. He has the power to bring about suffering and persecution. So, Revelation 2, verse 10, um, Jesus, these are the words of Jesus to the church. He says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. Like, what did that mean? Like, did a guy, a red guy with horns, like, actually seize Christians and bring them to jail? Well, it didn't, no, that's not how it happened. But Jesus is saying, it's the devil himself who is bringing this about. He will, he will, he will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. And so, th this suffering can even result in, in death. So, Satan has the power to bring about suffering and even to bring about death. He can kill. So, Jesus a few times will call him the ruler of this world. And Paul will call him in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this age. And when you look all at, at, at all of that, we're just scratching the surface, what you see is that Satan exerts great power and influence over the world. And so, you know, when he tempts Jesus, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and one of the temptations is he shows Jesus all these kingdoms and all this power, and he says, this is mine and I can give it to you if you bow to me. Like, was he lying? Well, not really. Like, he actually has, as the God of this age, he has power and influence that he exerts over the world. Is that the way you think about Satan? Spiritual reality? Maybe you don't think about it much. But this is what the Bible teaches. So to, to do what? What does he use that power for? What is the will of Satan? Well, simply the will of Satan and all he does is to thwart all of God's purposes. To thwart all of God's purposes. As one who hates God and is jealous of God's glory... Uh, everything Satan does is to rob God of glory, which is why he wants to destroy us. He hates us because we are those who are made in God's image, made by God to know God, to enjoy God, and to live with God forever. And he hates that. He wants to destroy what God has made. He hates what God loves. And so Jesus calls him in John chapter 10, he calls Satan the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so you see him in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, the first time where we see this encounter between him and his, his work to deceive, to lead astray people. He comes to that woman, and maybe you know how the story goes, and, and the man was there too. Did God really say that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Well, right away he's trying to deceive, he's not telling the truth. And the, Jesus will say Satan is a, is a liar, he's the father of lies, and lying is his native tongue. There is no truth in him. All he does is he wants to deceive, to lead people astray from the glory of God. Did God really say that you can't eat of any tree? And she, she was, you know, the woman was, was, had some wisdom. She said, no. No, he didn't say that. He said, there's just this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that we are not allowed to, to eat. Hmm. And she said, or, or we will die. And he said, but will you really die? God knows, actually, that if you eat of it, you will not die. You will be like him. Your eyes will be opened and you too will know the knowledge of good and evil. Right? What is he wanting them to do? He's wanting them to do what he did. Rebel against God. 
right? Not serve God, not submit ourselves to the authority of God to do His will, but to seize it for our own. He's wanting to lead them astray from the goodness of God. And, and, and even in that counter, he's kind of doing it in a couple of different ways, right? Satan will use pain to do that, to call, to call into question the goodness of God. God, he knows that if you eat of it, something, something good is going to happen, and he doesn't want you to get, have good. He's wanting to withhold good from you. He's not good, he's a tyrant. He will use pain and he will use suffering to cause someone to kind of think, there is no good God worth trusting. God is not good. He will use pain to deceive, but he'll also use pleasure to, 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 um, to deceive. He says to the woman, you can have all of this for yourself. You don't need God. You can be God. And he works to kind of bring people into a place where they, this place of comfort and ease and pleasure where they feel that they have all they need. There is no need of God. God is irrelevant. And anyway he does it, his work is about blinding people to the glory of God. That's what, in everything he does, to blind people to the glory of God. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 verses 4. This is Paul, he says, the God of this age, again, that's a title for Satan, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that, now, what does this look like in the spiritual realm beyond where you can see, like, again, there are, there are questions, and we don't get answers to every question, but the God of this age, however that happens, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What is he trying to do? To blind people to the gospel, the good news of the gospel, which displays for us the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That's why he does what he does. That's what it means when he says he leads the world astray. And he'll, he'll do that in all sorts of ways. He'll even use religion to blind people to the gospel. Sometimes we think like the, the, work of, the work of the devil is, man, if he can just pull people into drug use and, you know, drunkenness and orgies and all that stuff, just indulging every desire of the flesh, that's how, that's how Satan works, right? But a part of his deceit is he has a few different weapons. And so to get to blind people to the truth of the gospel and the glory of God in it. So, so listen to this. This is 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Paul says, clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Ooh, what are they doing? I bet they're going to the bar every night. They're listening to rock and roll. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid, okay, this is, what is the work of demons, things taught by demons? They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain food, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. He's saying he's using religion. He's using a way of thinking and relating to God, which is creating just a bunch of rules, and through our attempts to try to follow these rules to be righteous, to achieve for ourselves um, God's favor. He says that's of the devil blinding us to the truth and the glory of the gospel as displayed in Jesus Christ. However he does it, he wants to lead the world astray away from the glory of the gospel. And so you'll have Paul say this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 12. Finally, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, for your struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. Hear that, Christian? Your battle, he says, is not against flesh and blood. Don't be ignorant to the, who the real enemy, the, the, the scariest, more powerful enemy is the enemy that you don't know is there. 
He says, ultimately, your enemy, your problem, your conflict, it's not about flesh and blood. It's about what's empowering that, what's behind that, behind the scenes. It is Satan, evil spiritual force, trying to lead you astray. He says, know who your real enemy is. Know when you wake up Monday morning that you are in a war. Even if you can't see it, there's a battle being waged for your heart and mind and for the heart and mind, hearts and minds of those around you. Don't be naive to the fact you are in a battle. Satan is scheming against you. Your problem, he says, ultimately is not one another. And boy, Satan never had a heyday over these last few years, right? Especially this COVID time in the church, right? Just kind of what, what he's brought, just like the division and the harm and the anger and, and, and the bitterness and the unforgiveness and all of that. And, and did you know that when the Bible talks about Satan's schemes, that's what it talks about almost every time? Ephesians chapter 4, do not let the sun go, do not give the devil a foothold and do not let the sun go down on your anger, okay? Do not give the devil the foothold, do not let anger remain, what is the devil's scheme? Anger. I think it's in 2 Corinthians earlier. He'll say, if there's anything that needs to be, get, be forgiven about you, I forgive it. I, I forgive it so that Satan will not outwit us with his schemes, for we know his schemes. Right? What is his scheme? Unforgiveness, bitterness, anger, division within the people of God. Why? Because the church is the God's chosen people to, to proclaim and to display the glory of the gospel in Jesus. That's our mission. He would love, love nothing more than to rob us of that. Satan is at work against the church. And one of his, most, like his schemes is to try to divide anger, bitterness, division, unforgiveness. And so, man, he's had a heyday over the last few years. And, and, and partly because we have not been alert. Paul is saying, be alert. Your struggle is not against flesh and blood. Know who your real enemy is so you do not fall into the devil's traps. He tries to lead you and the world astray. Be alert. We need to be alert, but we don't, I just need to say this. We don't need to be afraid. I remember reading stuff as a kid, being scared, like maybe there's like a demon in the corner of the room. You remember that? And maybe, maybe you're an adult. You're like that, like... <gasps> You read, you read some books, and it's kind of a terrifying thing, and, and there is reality to this spiritual power, great, uh, great power that Satan wields. But I love what John says in 1 John when he says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. I love that verse. Greater is he that is in us, and who's in us? Jesus by his Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, God who is greater by far, is shielding and protecting us, remain in him. So who is Satan? That's Satan. Cole's notes. How does Satan's will and God's will relate to each other? Because you heard those words read by, by Howard in Job, and maybe you know the story of Job, and it's perplexed you. You know, Satan comes to God and asks for permission to go and torment this guy named Job, who's just going about his business, a good man. And, 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 and God says, yeah, you can do that, but you can only go this far, but you can't do that. And okay, and then Satan goes out and he actually inflicts Job with this terrible disease. So his wife just says, like, it's so bad. He's like, just, just curse God and die. Just be done with it. And maybe you've wondered, is that how it works? Like, when I suffer, is that, what, is that what's happening? Like, is Satan going up there and going like, I want to hurt Rusty. I want to take one of his kids. And God goes, no, you can't take one of his kids. All right. Then um, let, me, let me inflict his wife with cancer. Okay. Okay, Satan, but do not touch his coin collection. Is that what's happening? Have you ever wondered that? Like, is that? So what I want us to kind of see here is that's not the point of, of that encounter that we are given, this insight in between how, how Satan's will and God's will relate to one another. 
Uh, it's, it's not that Satan has to come and ask for God's permission and gain God's permission in order for him to do evil any more than you have to go to God and ask if you can sin. And then he says, yes, and then you go sin, right? It doesn't work that way. Satan doesn't have to, he doesn't ask for permission to do any of his uh, evil work, any of the suffering he wants to inflict. The point there is this, is that God is sovereign over Satan in all he does. It's that Satan does not have free reign. He does not have total power and authority to do anything and everything he wants. He is under ultimately the power and the authority of God. God has the final say, and God does not permit Satan to have a freedom that God does not restrain. That's the point. God is sovereign over Satan in anything he will do. And even if they do, Satan and, and God, even if they do will the same act, they will it for very different purposes. Purposes that couldn't be more different from one another. So there in that instance, Satan afflicts Job with his disease to make him weak and to, and, and, and to destroy his faith and to take him away from God. But God allows, He permits that suffering in order to show and to grow Job's strength, which you see come about at the end of the story. And so another point in that encounter is that Satan inflicts suffering to destroy, but God, when He allows it, allows suffering to develop us. Allows it to build, not to tear down and to destroy, but to develop and build. And you see this happening. You see this, this work of, of, of God and Satan together, but for very different purposes in 2 Corinthians chapter... 12. The words will be up on the screen there. So Paul says, in or, Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for, God, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I don't know if you ever really kind of thought of what's happening there. Who was it that tormented him? Whatever that thorn in the flesh was, and we don't know, but, but, it, but it, was, it was a suffering that he begged God to take from him. And what brought about that suffering? A message, a messenger of Satan. So Satan was trying to harm Paul, to do him harm. Why did this happen? Well, in order to keep me from being conceited. Well, hold on here. Does Satan, did Satan do this because he wanted Paul to not be conceited? But to trust in God? No, it's not Satan, that, is that Satan would want him to be conceited. Well, well, who is it then that doesn't want him to be conceited? It's God. So you see here in this one instance, you see God allows this suffering, which Satan is using to try to harm, to destroy, but God allows to develop, to build. And Paul recognized that and trusted in that and even rejoiced in his sufferings, not because he loved to suffer. Who loves to suffer? But he, he believed that in it, God was at work. He trusted in God's sovereignty even over his suffering. And so what we see there is that God harnessed Satan's hatred of, of, of Paul to serve God's purposes. Satan is subject to God's overruling and guiding providence. How does that make you feel? That God, that, that God restrains that God, that when things happen, God permits, but God restrains. Satan is subject to God's overruling and guiding providence. And you see that no more clearly than you see that in the cross. This is the, the ultimate display of this, right? We're told that Satan entered Judas to go, what, to bring about Jesus' death? 
But then afterwards, we see in Acts chapter 116, where it said, this had to happen. Judas had to betray him in order to fulfill the scripture of David back in the Psalms. In other words, Satan did this to harm Jesus, but this was God's plan. So who killed Jesus? Was it Satan or was it God? And the answer is yes. Satan brought it about to destroy and to hurt. And God brought it about to build and to ultimately to save us. And when the disciples realized how God used sin, how God used sin to defeat sin and Satan to defeat Satan, it changed everything for, for those disciples. It changed the way they thought about life. It changed the way that they thought about their sufferings. The cross changes everything. For the, in, in the cross, we, we, we find that sin and death are defeated, and there is no condemnation for those who trust in Jesus Christ and receive forgiveness of sins. Paul puts it this way, Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15. He says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, taken what away? Our, our debt. He has paid our debt, the debt of our sin. He took our punishment. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle on them, triumphing over them by the cross. Who are those powers and authorities? That, that's a reference to Satan, right? So paying our debt, he says, is the same as disarming Satan, right? Because what, what, what is really the only weapon that Satan has against us? It's our sin. Because if he leads us to strain of sin, sin led to death. The wages of sin is death. And so what is the ministry of Satan? You see throughout the Bible, Satan is an accuser. In fact, that's what the word Satan means. The word Satan, it's not a name, it's a title. It means accuser. In Revelation 12, it says, Satan would stand before God and accuse us day and night. Look at their sin. Look at their sin. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Hell, hell, hell. You're a holy God. You got to punish that. Guilty, sin. He's our accuser, right? But, but in the cross, God has disarmed that. He has taken away the power of the accusation because God has paid the debt. That was a good place for an amen. Thank you. God has paid the debt. And so that's why in Revelation 12, it says, Satan accuses, stands before God, accusing us day and night. It says, but the Christians, they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Satan was overcome by the blood of the Lamb, right? There is now no more condemnation. The accusations have been disarmed. The teeth have been pulled from the lion. Sin and death are finally defeated in the cross. So the cross changes everything. The cross gives us complete confidence that God loves us and is for us. How do we know God loves us? Because, I mean, Paul kind of assumes that. He says in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, yeah, wouldn't it be great to know that God is for you? And if God's for you, who could be against you? Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be awesome? Just to go through life, everything you face, and to know that God is for you? If God is for you, who can be against you? Well, how do we know that God is for you? Because He suffered for you. The next verse, He'll say, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with giving us His Son, graciously give us all things? That is everything that we need to do His will. In other words, we know that God is for us because He did not spare His Son. Jesus, God, suffered for you. Why? So that, you wouldn't, so that you didn't have to suffer? No, because His love for you doesn't mean you won't suffer. A few verses later, what can separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or persecution or danger or nakedness or famine or sword? No, these things can't separate you, and I say that because you're going to face them. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, for I'm convinced that neither height nor depth, neither the present nor the future... Right? Neither angels nor demons, neither life nor death nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That love doesn't mean we won't suffer, but it changes the way. It changes the way we suffer. It changes our suffering. 
The cross changes everything. It means that we can know, we can have confidence, we can trust that God is at work even in our suffering. He is at work. For He loves us. He has not spared His Son from us. Nothing can separate us from His love. And for the disciples, it changed the way they looked at their suffering. They realized that it wasn't just Satan, that behind Satan was God's sovereignty, God's work. So the question, is it more comforting to think that the powers of life and death are ultimately in the hands of the one who hates you or the one who loves you? What would bring you more, what would bring you more comfort, comfort? To know that your suffering is in the hands of the one who hates you or the one who loves you? Or is it maybe in no one's hands, just random? Or are in the hands of the one who loves you, the one who suffered for you? What's more comforting? That's where Job found his comfort. He knew that his suffering was in the hands of God. Like, was he wrong when Satan came and afflicted him, and, and, then, and then he actually cried out, and he, he acted as if it was like God who did it? When he says, the Lord has given good, how can we receive good and not receive trouble? Blessed, the, the God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Was he wrong in what was happening? No, he was absolutely right because he saw through the suffering. He saw through, through even the evil and what Satan was trying to inflict and do and he saw through it and on the other side of it, he saw the sovereignty of God. How he saw that all of this was actually in the hands of the God he knew and loved and who loved him. And for him, that made all the difference. So his wife said, just curse God and die. And he said, you foolish woman, guys, don't try that at home. I made that mistake once. Don't try that at home. No, I've never done that. It, that brought him comfort, the ability to continue, to go on, to endure. There is comfort in knowing that God is sovereign over our suffering. So with the question of like, why is suffering happening? Why am I going through this instead of not going? Boy, wouldn't it nice to have be all those answers in the middle of it? And Job didn't even know in the middle why what was happening. He got more instead at the end. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Maybe at the end, we'll have some better sense. But you know, maybe we're not at the end. Maybe we're in the middle, right? And there's comfort in the middle in knowing that God is sovereign over our suffering. And God is good. So let me just close with this letter. And as, and as Paul says in Romans 8, God, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. God is at work. Our suffering is not outside of his hands. So John Piper is a, a well-known pastor that you may be familiar with. And when he was teaching on this, this subject, he got a letter from a young father. And the letter read this. My wife and I packed the car to go to our first ultrasound. We would get the news, whether it was a boy or a girl, then we would grab some smoothies and celebrate. I remember that day. Monica. We drove by at St. Pierre a week or two ago, the very house I remember being in there, 2006, hearing Annika's heartbeat for the first time. Incredible experience. We were going to celebrate, but as we sat in our appointment, we watched as the happy chatter of the tech quieted to a focused, silent gaze at the screen. Why was she looking so intently at the images? She got up and left the room, making some excuse about printing something off. Finally, the doctor entered. He said he regretted to inform us that the ultrasound was quite conclusive. Our daughter had spina bifida. There was also the potential of ge genetic disorders such as Down syndrome and infant death syndrome. This is not theory anymore. This was a real life, I need some answers right now moment. Did God allow this? Worse yet, did he design it? Certainly he could not be the architect of so much pain. And then, John, I read of your mother's death. When you wrote this, John said, I took no comfort from the prospect that God could not control the flight of a 4 by 4 His mother must have been killed by in an accident. I took no comfort from the prospect that God could not control the flight of a 4 by 4 For me, there was no consolation in haphazardness. And then the father writes, and it hit me, John, neither did I. 
Find comfort in that. Find comfort in God's inability to control the flight of a 4 by 4 No matter what I had thought I believed in the past, the only place where hope was found in that moment was in the hands of a sovereign God who is in control and ordains the falling of a sparrow and the electing of kings and the flights of 4 by 4s and the spinal development of our precious daughter. It was here that hope was found, and hope, being the seedbed for joy, began growing in our hearts, a joy that could truly be shaken by no pain. Where is comfort found in suffering? Comfort is found in the reality that in spite of, in spite of the reality of Satan and his will and his work and his evil and the, and the, and the suffering he wants to, to bring, comfort is found in the reality that God is sovereign over Satan. God is sovereign over evil. God is sovereign over suffering. And we find comfort in that because we know that God is for us. Because of His Son, we can trust Him. Even our suffering is in His hands. The cross gives us that confidence, and that makes all the difference. Let's pray. God, Boy, there are times when we would just love more answers, more answers of what you're doing and why you're doing and how you're at work in a hard situation in our lives, Lord, or maybe in the world when it just looks to us like the world is just spinning out of control and, and evil is running rampant. But today, God, we thank you that we are reminded by your word that regardless of what our eyes see, that that is not the truth, that you are sovereign over all things. You are sovereign over the one who hates us. You are sovereign over everything that would seek to destroy us. You are sovereign over every trial we face. We thank you, God, for your power and that your power is perfectly matched by your love. A love that we encounter at the cross when we see that you suffered for us. You gave it all. Your son died to pay the debt, to remove the obstacle, to reconcile us to you so that we might be forgiven, that we might have your favor, that we might have life, abundant life with you forever, a, a love that nothing could separate us from. And so, God, I know in this room right now, man, there's just a whole bunch of stuff going on in people's lives. And, and, and maybe things are going hunky-dory now, but something's going to happen at some point. And we're going to be tested by suffering, God. And I just pray that whatever it is that we find ourselves in, Lord, that we would be reminded that you are in control. You are sovereign. You are good, Lord. May we trust in you and glorify your name in all things. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.